Steve Jones, or, you know, we were going to have some funny uh, names to make up, but it's Kieran and Steve, not Karen and Stefan. And uh, <laughs> we've got a great show lined up for tonight. Uh, got a lot to cover. And Steve's been digging up more research uh, on the whole history that he and I have gone over for the last, what, three years, Steve? Something like that. Something like that. So uh, we're going to go into more of that, probably touch on the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Book of Esther, uh, the, the fact that Christianity is actually older than Judaism, at least as we know Judaism today. So that will be a new treat for people. And uh, so, Steve, the audience knows you, so I'll leave you be. Uh, Kieran, uh, how about you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Kieran. I host a podcast kind of just as a hobby. I don't release on a regular basis like I'd like to, but I host a podcast called Shit That Matters. And I've had Steve on, I think, three different times. And then the last interview I did was with Jan. And so you can listen there. I have a website called theshitthatmatters.com. And I also publish the episodes on Spotify and Stitcher. So that's how I got connected with Jan and Steve, by reaching out to them and having interviewed them on my show. And Kieran is very intelligent, and uh, she uh, can keep right along with this stuff. So we thought she'd add an important element to today's discussion. All right, so... Kieran, do you want to start off by hitting Steve with some startup questions? And by the way, audience, uh, feel free to post uh, questions in the chat there as well, uh, especially on the YouTube or on the uh, Logos Media Two channel on YouTube. And we'll try to incorporate your questions in the uh, converse, in the conversation discussion. Well, the first question that I kind of thought of when I watched the latest episode that you guys just did about the Dead Sea Scrolls was what was the real intention when you were talking about the Nicene Creed and how mm -hmm. Christianity was kind of changed with the Nicene Creed? Mm -hmm. What was the intention behind replacing substance and essence, which had been, you know, common terms in ancient Christianity with one and being? It's it's actually a vital distinction because at the Council of Nicaea, which is in 325, that up until then, Christianity was basically an illegal religion. And so when Constantine conquered the world, it, that, that's a funny little story, too, is that um, Rome was falling apart and the actual centers of Rome were in Constantinople, but both the Western half was actually in York, England, which most people don't know. And when that problem happened, Constantine's mother was English and that she was a Christian actually way before most people will give people credit for that. He amassed, Constantine amassed the English troops came down to Rome and had the battle called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And when he won, when that happened, he's, the, the sign was this, this cross that you see in a lot of Roman Catholic church, a cross with a the key row sign, moved the whole church to Constantinople. 
And Constantine, having seen that cross, decided that that was a signal that Christianity should be the state religion. So they, they brought in uh, bishops and deacons and priests from all over the realm uh, to have this big, huge meeting on how they were going to constitute Christianity. Now it had to be made legal. And there became a, a huge argument between the ortho, what we would call the Orthodox today and the Arians. So everything with that, this is going to arise a couple times in our discussion tonight, actually. But everything happened to the, the, the saying goes the history of the church was held over an iota, which is the dot over an I. So it was held for over a thousand years that had that dot been misplaced that the word for substance and essence would go from of the same being to like being, okay? And like being was what was actually became the heresy. They called it the Aryan heresy. And if you even read the Quran, they'll say that that was the, the beginnings in some sense of Islam over the change of that one word. So what happened is that that word embodies itself in what we use in English as either substance or essence. So what was held as, as holy since the Council of Nicaea, by the time you get to Vatican II, that they, they completely, a lot of the churches completely replaced that word with one in being, which to me sounds a lot more instead of like of same essence of, to being more like like essence. Um, it, it, in other words, you're saying Jesus is of the same nature as God. Now you're saying the only thing that distinguishes him is the fact of his existence. Well, in some sense, we're all in the image of God. So now there's really nothing to distinguish us from Jesus. It, it, there's, no, there's no level that, that he arrives at that we don't arrive at also. So it's, it's a way of watering down the whole thing. And so if you buy into the argument, that if that iota would have been changed and the church would have been lost, you could make a fairly decent argument today. Well, we basically caved in on that point. Do you think that it was a way to kind of make us divine too, by like yeah, putting us on the same level as God? See, that's why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> I could have summed I told it all Jan, I told Jan when he asked about my, about my bio, I said, inquisitive interviewer. That's all I got. <laughs> yeah, no, that, no, that's exactly it. That's, that's, that's it. You nailed it. Okay, is that it then? That's, that's really... it. That's it. Okay. You, 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 okay. you, you said everything well, I needed to say right there. And then if uh, it, you know, if we are God, then it makes us all fall into the whole primacy of consciousness ideology that everybody's a reflection of each other, and that reality isn't real. It it you know, and then we see this in Gnosticism, and we see this through all of the uh, CIA MK Ultra material, where it, it's basically a dissolution of the ego, and right. the ego is what basically defines us as being human beings. And if you get rid of the ego, now you you're you're fodder for all these, uh, you know, uh, what would you say, one in being, one in mind culture, you know, cult, the cult of mind. Right. Well, you know, so if reality isn't real, though, and, you know, and if and instead everything is flipped and everything is based on primacy of consciousness, then, uh, you know, it, it brings on a whole new dynamic to the discussion. But when reality is real, it's like that that quote that Kieran had uh 
with my interview with her, you know, if there's no real, if there's no God, there's no reality. If there's no reality, there's no truth. If there's no truth, then anything goes, you know, because then any sort of immoral behavior can go. And then we find ourselves in the fall and we see all of this iniquitous behavior. And as we know, iniquity leads to slavery. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that got me that this we were going to talk about it before the camera went on and I we saved it for now is that over the weekend I ran into a couple of fresh seminarians they're, they're freshmen coming in and one of the disturbing things at the seminar this is one of those kismet moments for me is to me it was like when we had 9-11 people start they quit questioning you saw all these intellectual kind of inquisitive debates just came to a close it became i'm saved you're not saved and let's all get down to it and that's that and you know they moved on but very interestingly now we're after 20 years of 9 11 i had seminarians come and they're starting they were asking the right questions again uh and i realized in answering their questions that a, a funny thing i realized the funny thing that i was raised in the situation where i realized and i think jan realizes this too is that the Dead Sea Scrolls were a very important thing in the 50s and 60s and onwards as steering religion into a new course. So nowadays, though, these seminaries, it's very easy to say, well, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's their potential hoax. There's something going on here. Uh, you know, I don't like dropping the, everything on them right away because I'll scare them off. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but they had no problem accepting that. And the, the thing is, I don't think they realized that the, the implications of all that. And so I came back Sunday night and I realized I really maybe need to th- think about changing the message a bit so that it approaches people who didn't live through that era or aren't familiar with that era, what really happened. And I think what we're talking about right now, the primacy of consciousness and things like that, that really is the pivot point in all this that gets lost in that. And so I, what I'd like to do tonight is see if we can steer the conversation a bit more towards going back to the beginning and explaining where the real problem happened, but maybe on different terms that would maybe fall easier on a, diff, a more, you know, a younger ear. Let's put it that way. All right. So how far back do you want to go? We got to go back at least 2000 years. <laughs> I would like to actually first go back to the beginning of the Reformation. Because I think that's where the you, real problem. Do you starts. want to? Do you want to start? Let's. Well, should we go back to the dispute between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and then kind of work forward from there? Uh, let me get let me get the problem going first, and what happened during the Reformation, because that's where Logos originally was buried. That's where things started becoming sketchy. So what happens is, and this is what I explained to the seminarians, because they know they'll know this eventually as they take their courses that you, the difference between a Protestant church and a Catholic church, for the most part, is one is more sacramental than the other. One believes in the Eucharist or communion. One, it's not so much that they don't believe it, but there's, a, there's an argument about how much the, the body and blood, the wine and the bread actually mean. Is it just representational or is it real or something like that? That all came by way of Thomas Aquinas at the beginning, right before the Reformation. And so the dispute was always, 
where did he get this knowledge from? And why is he, on what grounds did he have to wed Christianity to Aristotle? Uh, because Aristotle existed before Christianity and what makes Aristotle Christian in any sense. So the real Reformation, we, we teach today that it was started by Martin Luther with his with argument faith alone. Uh, but Martin Luther, the real argument isn't what is really presented in seminaries today. Martin Luther was taught by his teacher, Gabriel Beale, who was taught by William of Ockham. And most people are familiar with Occam's razor, but very few people are actually read the actual what the Occam's razor actually says. And if you actually go back to Occam's razor, what it really says is faith alone. That why do you need the uh, duplicity of reason and faith if faith gets you where you need to go? So what they were doing at that point is not only they were rejecting Aristotle as Aquinas had presented it to the church, but they were replacing Aristotle. And the, the, the basic uh, metaphor that they were using is that a person should be like a dog going to a stake, that we just know what the stake is and we should run to it. And uh, reason has nothing to do with it. And that's really the beginning of what was going on because where where Aquinas really got this stuff was from the Church of the East. He got basically what his major work, the Summa Theologica, was really uh, derived from St. John Damascene's text, the Fount of Wisdom or the Fount of Knowledge, depending on how you translate it. Most of the things that he got were, was a publication of the church scholars from the beginning that were working under the veil of Islam and things like that, that basically got persecuted by Islam, moved to the West and brought that knowledge with them and something the Catholic Church had not realized that they had. Does that make it clear, <laughs> I guess? Yeah. So what, I, what I'd like to do, though, is go back to the beginning and show why that was a crucial issue. Why it's all these things actually are in the Bible, but they're missed by most people. Okay. So one of the, I'm going to bring up a text here. That's, uh, let me show it here. Is this going to be the text about uh, the fig? No. Okay. This is going to be another text in that one of the, one of the issues is that in the 1800s, when they, they started a movement called historical criticism, which started pointing at errors and, one of, and whether the Bible was consistent in all these things. So one of the first errors they said well, was in the book of Genesis, did Moses write Genesis? And the, the speculation went because at the end of Genesis, the, the author describes Moses's death. So the question was, how does Moses describe his own death if he's the authentic writer. So that becomes a question and it becomes, you know, it gets inserted into, you know, polemics against the Bible and its authenticity and stuff. But the Bible itself says that what happened is when Ezra left the, the Persian exile, he moving back to Jerusalem took and basically wrote, took these texts that were understood by very few people 
and put it into a language that they were would understand, which eventually ended up in the Greek. So all the old text of the Bible that we normally, most people think were in Hebrew, they were actually in Greek, okay? Now, this is a little bit goes against that, in that there was a, a scholar, a actually Dead Sea Scroll scholar, which most people have never heard of, uh, named ne ne Nehemiah Gordon. And he realized that most, and he's Jewish, but most of the people up until the Dead Sea Scrolls considered Matthew the most authentic, oldest text because it, it looks, appears to have been written in Hebrew. And so most scholars assume that that would be the oldest text. But according to most scholars, it's that the Hebrew text has never been found. Uh, Nemia Gordon did find a Jewish text in Hebrew of, of the book of Matthew. And it has a difference that's not in any other of the text. And I think this is a thing to, that we can base most of the discussion on. It's in Matthew 23, 2. And the phrase goes at this point, I'll read it straight out of the Bible. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever he bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. So the way most scholars interpret this because of the, all the old texts is that this phrase is referring to Moses and his seat. And so it becomes a difficult problem in, in Christianity. Like, why would Moses be the bad guy in this situation? What Nemia Gordon found is he retranslated and went to all these texts going back to what he felt was the Hebrew version. And again, he was a Dead Sea Scroll scholar. And he found another translation of the whole thing, which he feels is more authentic. And so reading his translation, it says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, all therefore whatsoever they bid, not he, they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. In other words, he's accusing, the, the writing is accusing the Pharisees of hypocrisy. Okay. And so now you get into this argument of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and what was really going on that most people have left out. Okay. All right. Let's get into that. Okay. So what I, I, I want to reset the stage. Yep. And the stage goes back to what, what happened that was critical at the time of Christianity's birth. And what was critical is that, and this goes back to Esther. At, what you have to understand is the Old Testament theoretically was supposed to end with Esther and Daniel. And then you have the, all these apocryphal texts in between that's basically at, at the end of the, the Jewish scripture getting you to the new scripture. And those were the, called the apocrypha, the books of Maccabees and things like that. So what happens at the end of this, of the writings, is that the Jews are basically arrested and exiled to Persia. And it's called the Babylonian exile. They lived under that exile for quite a time. But, and the reason Esther was supposed to be important is that Daniel says there's a point in time signified by a major marriage feast that everybody left the exile. Some of the Jews were left behind, but a significant amount went back to Jerusalem with Ezra, who, who basically retranslated the old scriptures, what was left of them, into what we now know as the Bible. 
and started rebuilding the temple. Okay. So now you've got two, basically two factions of Jews. You've got the Jews who are returning to Jerusalem and you have the Persian Jews who are still in Babylon. The Jews that are still in Babylon know nothing about the Old Testament. It's not their scripture. Their scripture was what became known as the Talmud. And that, it, even though it, people will say, well, where in the Bible does it refer to the Talmud? What's referred in the Bible is in, as the Talmud is called the uh, traditions of the elders. And that actually was a gospel lesson for about two weeks ago. And the tradition of the elders is basically the whole thing is that it's sound, it's, you could translate the text to fit into the Reformationist thing that old is somehow bad and Jesus is a reformer like Martin Luther. Or if you understand that, that the tradition of the elders is actually this other thing called the Talmud, which is a, a basically essentially a verbal type Old Testament with with stories and all these arcane rules of how to conduct your life. You've got two different branches of Judaism evolving in each other. One becomes the Sadducees, the other one becomes the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are the Persian version of this, okay? So what happens is in the first century before Christ, before Christ these Pharisees, what are, are, are to be known later as Pharisees, start coming back and they want to take over the temple. And they're bringing their Talmud with them. Uh, and what's odd about that is there's a big war. There's a big war, and about 700 Pharisees are crucified by by the Jews who are in, in Bethlehem in, in Jerusalem. That becomes a, a very obviously it would become a touchy point about all this stuff. So what happens is the the Pharisees decide how are they going to take over Jerusalem. So what they do is they install somebody who's of their kind, which is Herod the Great, and he gets permission from the Roman Empire. What he does, and it's not, it's, it's referred to in the Bible, but not directly, is he installs a Pharisee as the head of uh, religion, religion, basically, basically, of the temple, called Hillel the Elder. And Hillel the Elder becomes the the centerpiece of the Pharisaic movement. Okay. What happens is that trying to go a around a lot of different ways, eventually the, we go through the crucifixion, we go through the life of Christ, but eventually the, the destruction of the temple is predicted, right? In 70 AD, the dis destruction is, this is, and you can look this up. There's different people, Michael Hoffman, uh, E. Michael Jones, they've got good books on this. I, I tend to doubt them. I, I think they they probably take it a little too more anti-Semitical than I would am comfortable with, I guess. Uh, they would deny that, but it's I think a lot of people would say, you know, you're you're kind of on a touchy ground. But what happens is that all the Pharisees pretty much get killed off, except one. And that person is basically a Pharisee in training. And his name is Johannes ben Sakai. He is smuggled out of the temple and goes to who's going to be the Roman Emperor Vespasian and asks for permission to reconstitute Judaism. Now, some people would say that he's basically putting the Pharisees back in charge 
and to some degree he is, but in some degrees you really can't know. He's reconstituting Judaism at that point. So somewhere after 70 AD, he goes to Vespasian, he has this council called the Council of Jamnia, and that's where Judaism is reconstructed under those terms. In, uh, in this sense, Christianity is actually older than Judaism because the original Judaism that most people think of uh, was shut down when the temple was destroyed and when everybody was uh, uh, enslaved in uh, Persia. So yeah. this is all a brand new Judaism at this point. Well, what Nemia Gordon specifically says is now you have to see Christ as a traditionalist, not as a reformer, that he is in a position where he's trying to protect tradition, not trying to invent a tradition. Unfortunately, the all, you got to think about this. When the temple's destroyed, all the temple uh, priests and everything are dispersed or killed. The all this the all the documents that would have been the library of the temple are moved. Some a lot of people would say that's what became the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so they were put there after the destruction of the temple. Uh, so they'd really have no way of reconstituting Judaism at that point, which is an important point because if you don't have the documents, if you don't have the scriptures to base it on, the next convenient thing to, to base it on is the Talmud. Would you say, would you say it like Judaism got turned into Persian mysticism? I wouldn't say all of it did, but I would say that's where Gnosticism seeps into Christianity through that route. Yeah. That that becomes the, the basis of Gnosticism. The, the true basis of Gnosticism is when that Persian angle, that dualism, combines with John's book, John's gospel, who then, you know, in the 18, 1700s gets, you know, sort of reinterpreted as a Gnostic text. But the, their principal Gnostic text was called the Corpus Hermeticum. And the beginning of that is a perversion of John's gospel. So somewhere it's fairly well documented that that puts a date on when the Gnostics begin. You have to have John's gospel first and it has to become popular and then somebody has to pervert it. And that, that at that point, you're back to this primi primacy of consciousness because they're taking in the beginning was the logos and the logos you know, was made flesh, they now turn it into a privacy of consciousness text. It's the one, now it becomes the one mind thing. Yep. <clears throat> at that point. A total inversion of, of Logos. Right. So what, what you've got to see now, and I hope I've, I've, I hope I've uh, illustrated this right, in that now, in order to keep, keep the ball going in the modernist field, now you've got a real dilemma because what you really want is you want to show that Christianity is a Gnostic cult if you're a modernist, but the dates don't work out because what gets you to that point would be to prove that this Judaism is that what we call Judaism today is the traditional thing that, that would have existed before Christ. And how are you going to do that? How are you going to take something that every scholar knows was constituted at least at earliest, say 150, 200 AD, and put it at 200, 100 to 200 BC. What's the best way of doing that? And the best way of doing that is to falsify some archaeological evidence. Okay, so a couple of questions from the audience. Uh, Melanie asks, 
the Kabbalah has sucked in many Christians. How does it fit in? And and I covered that in my shows with Todd about a year and a half or two ago, and I think uh, we covered that previously as well. But uh, do you want to give that a, a stab? Uh, go ahead. It sounds like you're in on it. Go well, ahead. well, you know, I mean, that's kind of, you know, well, so what we discovered, if I'm recalling correctly, is the Kabbalah and, you know, you, people can reference my shows with Todd for a little more uh, accuracy here. But if I recall correctly, the Kabbalah came in in 1666. Mm-hmm. Does that sound right? That sounds about right. And then, uh, which, of course, they would disagree with you. They would say a lot of this stuff they would say goes back to the beginning, but right. That's well, but and then that's uh, so the and it comes out of Spain when the Muslims were dominating Spain. Now, I could it could have been the 1400s, I could be mixing that up, but uh, and it may have been the uh, Sabbatean Jews who were actually uh, from Sabbatai Zevi who were actually crypto Muslims, so that kind of seeps in from there, as far as I remember. Uh, Dashing Rogue asks, is Christ a traditionalist or perennialist? And I think you kind of already answered that. Yeah. Well, to add to the Kabbalah thing is that I, I prefer to remember concepts rather than dates. And the concept of the Kabbalah is that God is numbers. Right. So that really is at the heart of the modern heresy that, you know, with mathematics, you know, I've made several act, you know, claims that people like Einstein it's just the Kabbalah retranslated. Right. Well, uh, you know, yeah. and I, uh, what was his name? Chris Bjorknes, I think, is uh, covered, uh, you know, uh, in depth uh, Einstein's frauds and ripoffs and things like that. But Einstein is really who tried to take primacy of consciousness to the extreme where nothing is real at that point. Right. Right. And what I'd like, if, if, if we can move on, well, what I'd like to... Let me, there's one more question here. Go ahead. Uh, so which modern school or thought is most representative of Christ? Orthodoxy? Uh, I like, let's put, let's hold that question off because I've got a good answer to that coming up, but I think I need to lay some groundwork first. All right. Okay. Uh, so what, so the, the thing that I've, that, that concerns me at this point, is what does Esther have to do with it? When what does love got to do with it? Because that's the title of our show. Um, and love is basically the replacement of the 1960s replacement for what became known as scholasticism, which was really logos philosophy of the you know Middle Ages, late Middle Ages, early Renaissance. And for those who don't know, let me interject here. Logos being reason. Uh, logos is where we derive the word logic from. Logic is the art of non-contradictory identification, or in other words, truth. So truth as God, and then that is inverted to be peace and love, Christianity post-Vatican II, correct? We're not against peace and love. We're not against anything like that. It's just that the, the ancient uh, metaphor, it's in the Psalms, but also is in the Bacchae that you have the horse and the rider, that the horse is likened to faith and the rider is right, likened to reason. Uh, it, the, the, the horse, you need the horse to get somewhere, but you need the, re, the reason, the rider, to kind of moderate it and to guide it. So it's not that love is wrong. It's just that it need, it, you can't just love everything indiscriminately. Somewhere you have to channel your love towards 
towards good, what the better and the good. Uh, that, that actually becomes the problem because he, what happens at some point in time, the whole essence of logos is the idea of you embracing or understanding or attempting to associate with reality. Uh, and you have this thing in, in this with the scholastic called the egocentric predicament or the veil of tears. How do I know that my thoughts reflect reality? Well, if that gets inverted, that decision never has to be made. I never have to decide. I, I, I will never know when I'm being deceived. Because you're starting from the point that I know reality is real and then any contradiction is a lie or an error there to deceive me. Yeah, well, where's the error, in my mind or in reality? One right. would say that error is in reality. The other one would say, well, it's in my mind. It, right. in, in real logos, you're assuming your mind might be an error, that it's reality that corrects you somehow. Right, and in primacy of consciousness, left-hand path, reality is no longer real. It's a figment of your imagination, and therefore it's not real. And that also takes away people's right to agency and them being responsible for their own actions. Uh, so then you become the fault of somebody else's actions and the whole, you know, and primacy of consciousness really puts the weight of the world on your shoulders because you think, you know, oh, you know, I must be thinking negatively because this happened in Afghanistan last, last month. Rather right. than all of this, you know, reality is real. People have their own agency to make their own decisions. And therefore, you know, they have the right to act the way they want to. And it's not your ego, your egoic uh, manifestation of the world. The world is real. And we are a part of the world. You know, we're not a part of your imagination. So, it, you know, it, it takes the ultimate egoic position away from, you know, the primacy of consciousness, sort of leftist Gnostic uh, perspective. Yeah, well, I would go one step further. I would say you earn your ego, in a sense, by assimilating and understanding the world. Everybody's right. given an ego at birth, but the, it, it, you nurture it by reaching out and contacting people and lo even loving other people and stuff. But it, it, it's a basic thing of which is an error. Is it, it is reality that's an error or am I possibly an error that I need training? Right. Well, and if there's, a, if there's an error in reality, what does it look like? Yeah. So, so And so if we ponder that for a minute, an error in reality looks like a car accident or a train wreck, mm -hmm. you know, because you can't have two ideas or two items, two nouns uh, uh, occupying the same space at the same time. So then, you know, we see a collision. And if we recognize that a contradiction is always a lie or an error, and then I think we discussed this last week, that tells you where to look deeper into it until there are no more contradictions rather than saying you know opinions are like you know what and we can't know the truth and that's part of this primacy of consciousness uh, consciousness trick this relativism from einstein and uh ongoing from quantum physics etc that you can't know the truth you know oh now there's you know 12 different realities so you can't know anything and then well, my, my, my logic professor in college basically said, we've had this argument before, uh, if you could prove a tautology true, 
which is a sentence like this sentence is false, then there's anything you can prove to, true that you want. The, to me, the, the top expert, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, on the failures of Einstein, I think his name is Metten. He wrote a book, Einstein, Popper versus Einstein. And he says the problem with Einstein is it proves too much. That if, if you accept Einstein, you literally can prove anything you want. Right. Well, that's what a tautology does. If you can prove that this sentence is false or I, one of the things that there was a famous painting by Magritte that this is not a pipe. Uh, you can look it up. It's, a, it's kind of a funny painting. But basically it's saying what you think it is, it is not. It's, it's, it deni- it's by, in its own self-reference, it denies itself. And once you've proved, accepted that as true, there's nothing you can't prove. It, it, it proves right. too much. So then it, it shows that Einstein's tautology and his the foundation of his thinking is false, which also connects, you know, who did, who did Einstein hang out at, with at Princeton University? And, you know, so those of you who play the drinking game, Julian Huxley. And so it always ties back to the Huxleys and then Aldous Huxley, you know, promoting all of this primacy of consciousness stuff with Jiddu Krishnamurti and working with MK Ultra. And we can begin to see the flow of this undermining of reality itself all the way through uh, pop culture, you know, Eastern religious philosophy, all of this stuff. And, you know, so many people today will just by default completely disregard Western philosophy because we start on the assumption that reality is real, where they start is the assu- with the assumption that everything is a reflection of them and I am God. So therefore, you know, you only exist because of me. And it's like, you know, so I don't have the right to exist. I don't have the right to my own opinions. Well, if you believe that, then it's your own reflection telling you this conversation right now. Right. And, you know, and by the way, if you want, there's more questions posted up here. You want me to go into those yet? Uh, let me let me get going on the next half of this. Bring, why don't you bring them up as we go? All right. Uh, what I wanted to do is in talking to my seminarian friends, I realized that they had a lot of questions that my solution was not answering directly. Not that there aren't answers to that, but they're not the typical questions. What we're talking about now is not the typical question seminarians would ask. Um, so what I would like to do in the past, I've shown how Esther is oddly similar to one of the gospels and that there's about nine to 12 different points of intersection with John's gospel. Correct. That, even though you could take that as true, it's like, well, what does that matter? Okay. And I, it's, it's a little bit more cloudy, I think, even though it's clear in my mind, it's, it's cloudy for other people to feel, well, why, if Esther is actually a New Testament document and fourth Maccabees is a new Testament document, which Jewish scholars have said, um, why does it matter? And so what I'd like to do, cause we've done several talks and you asked me to talk on Esther. Anyhow, I would like to back up and start with a whole different thing. And I think this would pull Kieran into the discussion because I think she's interested in this kind of stuff. Um, so what I did, I started here with about six questions. Uh, one I've already addressed a couple of them I've already addressed but I'd like to put these questions out on the table and let people mull them over. 
the question number one is what feast were the Jews celebrating on Palm Sunday? And Palm Sunday hadn't been invented yet. Uh, clearly from the Bible, you're drawing people from all over the then world as they knew it, uh, you know, congregating on Jerusalem. Why would they be there? Uh, and that's a question the Orthodox have actually asked is that the, the question is, is there an unknown feast that they're, that they're going to celebrate. Uh, number two, which I discussed with you this afternoon, why did Jesus curse the fig tree? And you'll find a lot of pastors that will try to say different things about that, and we'll get into that. Number three, we have some very good, especially in John, uh, discussions and evidence on the trial of Jesus. Okay, but Jesus was killed. Uh, the Pharisees literally didn't, didn't want to reveal what that trial was. Who, was. who was there to document it? How did that end up in the Bible if nobody was there that would have survived it to put it in the Bible? Why did that, how did that happen? Okay. Another question, why did Jesus refuse the gall at the crucifixion? And let's leave it at that. that the, well, there is one more question that it, it's not really in the form of a question, but it's in a thing called, what is the, G, the Josephus paradox, which is a kind of thing most people have never heard of, but it's very interesting. Okay. All right. So that's where we're going to steer the discussion. Why don't you just give me a couple of questions and we'll see if we can work them in. <clears throat> All right. This is from uh, Azul Luza. Is Steve aware that the current situation of rab uh, of the current situation of Rabbi Rasen Arusi and Rabbi David Sanmel disagreeing with the Pope Francis catechesis on the catechesis, catechesis on the propudic value of the law? Uh, recent letter. No, I'm not. Bluntly, no, I'm not. I'm, no, I'm not aware of that at all. All right, and then Joe says, Modern religion philosophy seems to say that humans cannot grasp or understand anything regarding God. It seems all believe humans can use logic and reason. It seems you all believe humans can use logic and reason to get to God. Well, yeah, that's obvious. I mean, uh, by definition, if you read the Bible, uh, the word, if you look up the translation, is logos, which means reason. Logic. Logic is the art of non-contradictory identification or truth. And this is the underlying teaching that uh, that Steve has been helping us uncover for the last three years regarding what Logos is and how the, the church was inverted to suppress truth as God, essentially. And let me just interject one more thing there is, you know, we see it when we see the, the grand joke of it. When we go into a courtroom and, and place our hand in the Bible and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Why would that be there unless God were truth? But go ahead, Steve. Or, yeah, or Karen. I wouldn't say, Karen, I, Karen. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't limit God to just truth, but it's a definite, a major aspect of it that gets united with being and existence and things like that. You, you, they can't exist by, truth, in other words, truth has to also exist 
and it also has to be, have a goodness in that. So you get kind of a trinity, which we've talked about. And, and truth becomes the light, and then basically Jesus is truth or logos incarnate. Right, right. So, Karen, Karen you've got anything or before I go on? Ju- jump in. Well, I had some questions, but I think that we're kind of steered away. Well, go go that. ahead and, and... Well, I guess when you were talking about the Pharisees, I feel like you were kind of going into just historical chronological you know the history of it and everything but what i found interesting when we've kind of talked about it a couple times is basically tying in who the pharisees were back then Mm -hmm. to like what progressives or people that call themselves progressives like what they're doing now yeah so i feel like that like if you if you're able to kind of see how those two things connect at least for me it shows how the bible like isn't antiquated and how, like, when you Let, read the yeah, Bible, it can really be a predictive document for, like, what's going on right now. I'm, I'm going to try to pull a cure in here and try to stay away from a, a long argument and try to make it as simple as possible. <laughs> if, if you don't have truth, you need lots of laws. Yes. Okay. That was another point I was thinking when you were talking about the Talmud, is it's, like, basically. Yeah, exactly Basically right. all legalese. It's it, just, Exactly. Like, I mean, look at the society today. If we if this isn't right, well, let's go get another law. If we don't, let's throw more money at it. Yes. Uh, it's, it's it's the idea that now, it, it, I always tell people a, a lot of the Talmud is sort of like if you step on a crack, you break your mother's back type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then if you keep going on and on and on, if that doesn't fix it, well, make, let's make you step on two cracks and, you know, or something like that. Well, there, and, you, and in the Talmud, there's actually laws about walking under, you know, through a walkway with an overhang on a Sunday and blah, 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 and, or Saturday and how that's, you know, against the law and all of this nonsense. And this is what Jesus spoke out against is just how far removed from reality it became. Right, uh, right. Daniel Ritter says, can't we prove the historicity of the Old Testament by the Septuagint, especially since it was translated in the Jewish temple before Christ, it was quoted by Christ, and the Orthodox Church church kept an unbroken chain of custody with it. That's exactly right. Uh, and there, there used to be uh, a website, I don't know if it's there anymore, but it examines the Septuagint and actually makes a chart of which Bible Jesus is quoting. Is he quoting the Septuagint or the Mo, the uh, the Hebrew Bible, and overwhelmingly he's quoting the Septuagint. But the, the only argument I have with that is that, that doesn't. I don't want to relegate the Hebrew that it has nothing to offer though either. Uh, there's there is stuff there. The, the, I would say the problem with the Hebrew more than anything is that Hebrew is written without vowels, and so it opens the door for a lot of people looking for codes and looking for different kinds of translations and reading into it what you want to read into it. Most people, even Jews, as far as I know, would take the, the Septuagint as more or less normative, but they do try to discover other things within that by using Hebrew. And I don't, at some point, I don't, I, don't, I don't have anything against that. It's, there's some, there are things to offer, like Nemia Gordon. He's, I think that's a valid his argument about that Matthew mistranslation, I think, is a valid argument. Okay. You want to jump in there, Kieran, or are we passing it back over to Steve? Um, the only other thing I kind of thought of was when you were talking about, like, reality not being real and primacy of consciousness. 
when we were talking on the phone last night, I feel like Steve, you made a comment that really just like broke it all down for me, because I think that when you get into all this stuff, like with what Jan was saying with quantum physics and how they have like 13 different realities. And it's like, I know Jan had that David Harriman on his show a long time ago. And I went through that whole series and it was like always really interesting to me when I would listen to Jan's show and he'd be like, quantum physics is a fraud or it's fake. And it's like, when you hear that, it sounds absurd, like on the surface, like how could a whole field of study? That's actually what brought Steve and I together too, is that series. Yeah. Well, cause Steve talks about some of that too, in his books, which I found interesting, but basically what you Sharon said, knows my time, books better than I know them. So. I know <laughs> I did. I went overboard preparing to interview you. I tend to do that. But you last night you said, Steve, that if you get too far into the details or you dig too far down into the details, you end up destroying reality. And I feel like when you characterize it that way, that I don't know, that just like a light bulb where it's like, I understood the concept. I'd done enough digging to understand the concept, but I just think that for other people that was that that would like hear. Well, yeah, but I, I think that for other people, like the general public that hasn't been exposed to this kind of information, they would just look at you guys saying this and they'd be like, what, you know, like, what the heck are they even talking about? But when you look at it that way, I feel like that's a real nice, concise way to get somebody to understand like your perspective. Yeah. I mean, if you have too much contradiction in these things and you've undefined truth, well, what separates that from being a mythology by itself? Uh, I think that in, in the ancient Judaism, that's why they kept you know, they, they kept the name of God secret and nobody would pronounce it because to, to get that close to reality would be dangerous. And I, you could go through the similarities between that. And I think even Occam's razor, uh, some of Gödel's uh, completeness theorem, but probably more than anything is just Heisenberg's uncertainty principle that you, that there's a, there's a level even in physics where you dig too deep your, your, the apparatus that you're using to measure actually influences your results. So there, there's, we don't, we think we can keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, there, the, one of the major physicists in the world who's actually turned Christian is, uh, I believe his name is George Ellis. And most people don't know this, but you had this Michelson-Morley test to see what the speed of light was and whether it changed or not. And they started off with a little platform and each, every several generations, they would build the platform bigger and that didn't work out. And people say they know what the number is, but that number has basically been lied about. And so George Ellis recently came out and said, you know, to really get a, a suitable platform and stability to actually determine this, you'd have to build a platform bigger than our solar system. And he says, there's an upper limit to what you're ever going to know on these things. And you get too close to it, you destroy it. So we're going to, we're entering a period now where we're going to have to just accept this is what we can know. And we may be, you know, kind of route out little corners here and there, but there, and there's lots of areas to discover, I think yet in other branches of physics and knowledge and things like that. But in a lot of these things, we've each reached the upper limit of what we can know. And to go any deeper is basically looking into the hand of God. I think that kind of ties into what we were saying in the beginning too, with like the changing of essence and substance to one and being, yeah, it leads exactly. to studies like quantum physics and using numbers as God, because we think that we have that ability. Like, of course, with logos, we value using our intellect to lead yeah. us to God, to, you know, align ourselves with truth and everything. But like you said, last week on your show that there was the ancients viewed it 
as God being like incomprehensible, mm-hmm. like the value well, in that as well, like knowing what our place is. That's like and that's really what important. you asked before, what was prime matter? And that was the, that was the lower limit of scholastic thought is that the lower limit of understanding reality is what they called prime matter, which was just another word for incomprehensible matter. Somewhere underneath was a substrate of something you're never going to understand. And then that gets spun into black matter and all of this stuff. So the, so that, that, so like, the quantum physics could then build on it and do all of this stuff. But, you know, as you know, this is all based on Immanuel Kant's uh, work in, you know, the, that's what quantum physics came out of, which created this whole sophistic primacy of consciousness worldview that we're dealing with right now. What, what to answer the question directly, though, because he sounded like he was orthodox, what I would recommend looking up is Fourth Maccabees, which is a text that is considered authentic by the Orthodox Church. The real name of Fourth Maccabees isn't Fourth Maccabees. It's the real name of the sovereignty of reason over emotions. And why was that taken out? You know, and I wanted to mention a minute ago. Uh, well, know, that's why I wanted to back up here on this other these questions that I. Well, yeah, but let I me had. let me just say here. Let me see if I can find it. And I published something on Facebook years ago, showing how uh, the trivium is essentially Father, Son, Holy Ghost, and mm-hmm. then the Bible references understanding, knowledge, and wisdom. You know, I don't know if it's the translation that was spun out of the proper order rather than knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. But it does reference that, you know, in, in the, uh, the Bible. Okay, so what, I, what I'd like to do now is examine these four questions I asked, because I think it's, uh, something's going to emerge, because normally when I give this discussion, it focuses on these similarities between Esther and John's gospel, and people say, well, so what? What does that matter? And how? Well, if that's all the reason or all the proof you've got, well, so what? I'd like to show there's another angle to look at this. One of the primary things I would say is go back to why did Jesus curse the fig tree? And if you go, most pastors, when that comes up in the lectionary, they'll talk about, well, the fig tree represents Judaism, uh, and it, it's, it's withering because it's not growing uh, fruit. What's not addressed usually and what's missed on this is that in the Jewish calendar, the last month was the month of Adar, and you had this feast at the time called Mordecai's Day, which eventually became the Feast of Purim. And what, when the year ran long, because the Jewish month was, was actually a literal month from the moon, you would always end up with these extra days at the end of the year. And if you had another, enough days, you'd wonder, well, do we cert another month in that? Well, what, what happens is when Jesus curses the fig tree, he's looking at the fig tree and he looks and it's not bearing fruit. The, the point of the matter is the real determinant feature of the fig tree is that it was the fruit that bloomed that said whether they were going to have another month of Adar. So what you get is this other earlier month of Adar, which would have a, a small Mordecai's day. But if they did it again, it would become this kind of feast that a lot of the Orthodox say, well, what's this other feast they're always referring to? Uh, one of the questions you could, I forgot to say before is, in the book of John, Palm Sunday is on a Monday, and that's indisputable. 
why would the Bible have a feast in there that is out of sequence? What happens is you're going to find is that what Jesus looks at, he's looking at the fig tree and says, oh, no, we're going to have this. We're not just going to have small Mordecai day or small pyramid at later on. We're going to have this great feast. And it, it was called Great Mordecai's Day or Great Purim, where which attracted people from all over the place because it was it we would today liken Mordecai's Day to something akin to Fourth of July and the, the birth of our nation and things like that. So now you have this other thing going on where you realize there's there's something else missing in this context that is clearly in the Bible, but we're not approaching it right. The other thing I would like to bring up is who and where did the narrative of Christ's trial under Pilate come from if we don't have any eyewitnesses? Hmm. Now, I'm going to guess. Can I guess? Yeah, I think you did already, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, Josephus. Yeah. Okay, so what happens is you have this paradox. It's called Josephus' paradox. And we know about it because Josephus refers to it in his own writings. So Josephus is in this, got himself in a position with his troops that are under them that they, they've they're decided to commit suicide. And it's against Jewish law to commit suicide. So they come up with this oddball thing where I'll kill you if you kill the next guy, if you kill the next guy, and if you kill the next guy. So they're in this situation where one's killing the next and killing the next. And I don't know, I don't remember how they figured it out who's going to do, but it ends up with one other guy in Josephus. And they look at each other and say, well, I don't want to kill you. No, I don't want to kill you. So all these other people have died, except for Josephus and this other guy. So it, what became, you can look it up, it's called either the Josephus problem or the Josephus, Josephus paradox. But when jo Josephus is writing all these things, the Jewish wars and about Esther, the old, as far as I can find, the oldest version of Esther is from Josephus. So because of the Josephus paradox, he was not held in very high esteem among the Jews because they thought he, he had somehow tricked his, his soldiers into committing suicide, and he somehow survived. So the question now you have to ask, well, if he's not if he's not held in very high esteem by the Jews, and he wasn't until recently, as far as I know, who is he writing this stuff to? Now, there is an old Orthodox tradition which can't be right, but could be near right. And that is Josephus was one of the Pharisees at the trial of Jesus. What? Now, the dates of his birth and death do not fit exactly right, but his parents we're connected to the holy priesthood of the temple. And then if we move forward, he becomes the historian for the Roman court. And then uh, he writes this. He writes the fifth gospel into the book of Esther Mm -hmm. and encodes it in the story of Haman, and then we have the Purim festival and all of the other stuff. But and that's all pretty solid too, because you have to ask them, why are they crucifying Haman if they if it's illegal to do that? That crucifixion was saved for one person, according to the Old Testament. It was it was saved for the person who was the all time heretic sorcerer, in that you were actually damning him by putting him on a cross. 
and the likeness of Jesus to Haman is indisputable. And, and you had you had pointed out in your book that there were what twelve or thirteen uh, similarities, and you can have like three or four before you get into statistical uh, impossibilities. But when you have thirteen, it's like you know it becomes ridiculous. And then you have these two characters, Haman and Jesus, uh, being the only two people crucified and at the exact same time and all of this stuff ever in history with, you know, with these things. Why don't you break that down for those who don't know it? Well, what happens is you basically, in the story of Esther, you have Haman, who's the bad guy. Uh, In the Encyclopedia Britannica, you could actually go back and the early, early 1900s version of it specifically said the name of Esther was not Esther, it was Arasa. And if you just look at that, it, and it's clearly Persian or, or Aramaic. Um, but if you just put the prefix to it as Shahrazad, it's very obvious that the story of Esther is a perversion of the story of Shahrazad. And so, which is found in the thousand, the thousand and one nights tales and things like that. So what happens is you have this story where Haman is trying to sell out the Jews uh, he's turned. He's determined to be the bad guy, and he's he's caught by an Esther. That's a kind of a long thing. But then you have this story of the crucifixion of Haman, where he's put on a hill with his two two sons on either side. Beforehand, they march him through the streets. They uh, put robes on him. It's uh, you. You have uh, one thing where you have a fortune lost as a fortune gained, where the fortunes are completely turned, where you think the one guy is the bad guy, and all of a sudden everything is misplaced and turns around. The winner becomes a loser. The loser becomes the winner. Uh, they're shaking lots. There's just too many weird similarities between the crucifixion of Haim and the, the principal one that scholars are wrestling with. But you, even even in uh, Fraser's Golden Ball, which is the thing that started this controversy up. He had this all documented and written out in a very scholarly fashion in the early 1900s, but it was censored. And so you get the golden ball today and it, it, it's not it's not in there. And we're, the most, we're not talking about the abridged version, but the what, 10, 9, 10 volume version of it. Yeah, yeah. And you can find it on there. It's it's under the, the headings, the scapegoat. But the thing is, is that what you realize is that there's this crucifixion. They go... They go to they, they go to Pilate or they go to the authorities and say we have no law to crucify him. Well, they did have law to, to technically crucify him because they were stoning people all the time. But typically, they would kill the person, then they would hang him up on a pole. the The distinguishing feature is that they didn't have any law as a torture by death by hanging on a cross. So, in Jesus' case and in Haman's case, they both died as a result of the crucifixion. That was unique in history. The other thing that was unique in history was the typical, the, the damnation of doing it on a cross because the cross itself was considered a sign of damnation. And, and eventually the burden of all this stuff becomes too high. And it's not that scholars haven't admitted to it. It's just that it usually gets censored. Okay. All right. Now, what I want to do here is I want to shift I want to shift a little bit as a result of talking to these seminarians and stuff like that, because what's very important to them always comes up right off the bat and usually comes up with other people that are familiar with this is the, 
the filioque clause and this real story behind the filioque clause. Do you, do you know what the filioque clause is? I do not. Okay. In the Nicene Creed, as we recite it today, it, it says, proceeds from the Father and the Son. Okay? The real rupture between the East and the West Church came from the filioque, which is just filioque, which means and, and the Son. From the between, so what you have is proceeds from the father, they added on, and this extra filioque at the end. Okay. People assume that that alone, the filioque clause, is the, in other words, they're trying to, how, how can I say this? They're trying to substantiate where the Holy Spirit comes from. Okay. And in the original Nicene Creed, the, the Spirit comes directly from the Father. They added on and the Son, and that was done by the Pope. So the way they normally teach this, even in most seminary classes, is that they'll say that addition was unwarranted as held by the Orthodox Church. And so that became the reason to doubt the papacy, and that's caused the severance of the Eastern Church from the Western Church. There's the rest of the story, which they never teach you. And this is plays into the whole Logos thing, too. So what they had is to solve this, the, the church, the Eastern Church was pretty much centered in Constantinople. The Western Church was centered in Rome. And so the, the Eastern Church was under onslaught by Islam. And they, they're appealing for military troops from the from the Western Church to come and help them defend Constantinople. They decided they weren't going to do that if, unless there was a prior agreement that over the filioque clause. So they had what was called the Council of Florence, which hardly ever gets talked about. And so what they did is they had a delegation from the Eastern Church headed by a guy named John Bessarion, who was the chief Orthodox guy who came to the West but he also brought a judge along called uh, Jamistus Plethon, who actually was a more or less a Gnostic Neoplatonist. By the time they get to the Council of Florence, he becomes a superstar because he's got basically this Gnostic theology that's supposed to solve all the problems. He's, he's got a reputation of solving all disputes and they, he becomes a rock star in, in Florence. Uh, and in, in basically engulfs all the talk and all the attitude and all the fascination at that time. So much that by the time the Council of Florence is done, Plethon has pretty much converted all the Roman Catholic bishops to Neoplatonism. So what happens at the Council of Florence, they, the Medici family actually reconstitutes, even though they've been shut down since the beginning of Christianity, the Neoplatonic schools, they start teaching Neoplatonism again. What they do is they convert John Bessarion into a Roman Catholic. He becomes, replaces the, the bona fide uh, bishop, Archbishop of Constantinople and eventually becomes Pope himself, I believe. What happens is all the people from the Eastern Orthodox Church that don't sign on with the filioque clause are put in prison until they recant. What happens is all all the Orthodox bishops, save one, 
recant and say, yeah, we'll put on the, the field of Cray clause. And the one who doesn't is Mark of Ephesus. And you can look all this up in Wikipedia. So they send the delegation back. And what's kind of similar to today is by the time they get back, the laity all say you've committed heresy. And the, her the, the average Joe in the street, this the average you and me, holds to task all these bishops except for Mark of Ephesus. And they make them recant all the Neoplatonism. And what happens is Mark of Ephesus then becomes converted to Aristotelianism. And Aristotelianism then becomes the basis, even though most, a lot of people don't know this, it becomes integrated into Eastern Orthodox Church. And the, in a sense, the torch gets passed from the Roman Catholic Church to the Eastern Orthodox Church. The, eventually what happens is that all the Eastern Orthodox bishops recant. Uh, there's a kind of a legend that in, in any given era, at some point, it's, Christianity is going to come down to one person and one person alone that will know the truth. And at the time, they decided it was Mark of Ephesus. Mark of Ephesus had the complete fullness of faith, brought it to the Eastern Orthodox Church. And you don't see that commitment to scholasticism in the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, it's always there to some degree, but you don't see that total commitment until the early 1800s under Cardinal Mercier and the neo-scholastic school which eventually gets drummed under by the modern French modernists, and that leads up into Vatican II and the Dead Sea Scrolls and what have you. So I hope that puts a complete yeah, let's thing. and and so we can see with this new history and discussion how faking the Dead Sea Scrolls was actually a necessity. Yes, to give the new Jewish church, because it's, you know, the temple was destroyed, all the Pharisees were wiped out, you know, it was brought over from from Persia, it wasn't even the real thing anymore, but we can see then how they had to create documentation and plan it in uh, Qumran Cave 4 and all of this stuff to give this new Judaism several hundred years more history to, to age it before Christianity, when in fact Christianity is older than Judaism. As it's constituted now. Yeah, and then what happens eventually recreate Orthodox Judaism. Um, and that was, the, that was the original argument from Solomon Zeitlin at the time, who is the top schol Jewish scholar on this. He said that the text that they're using, the, the you know, the, the printed word that they're using, that those symbols didn't exist until 400 years later, and they're trying to attribute it to something too early. That was always the discussion, that the, that type of script didn't exist in the point of time that they're trying to attribute it. Karen, you're quiet over there. So what do you, yeah, I'm just thinking, so what do you think, I don't know if maybe I'm missing something, what is the real benefit of making the public think that Judaism or the Judaism that you're talking about was older than Christianity. Is it the Gnostic component or was it? Is I think it's the Gnostic component. It? I think clearly after World War II, you can't, you can't have a country going around annihilating 6 million people. Uh, but that, it, to me, 
you know, I don't want to get controversial, but it's very similar to the modern state of affairs. You, at the time of Christ, you had leprosy, which if you, if you kind of just in your mind, look at all the different things that are going on today and, and look really read the, the period closely in the Bible, you see so many things are just similar. You have this rise of the Pharisees, you have this rise of leprosy going on. The rise you, of the left and uh, the... Yeah, I was going to let you say that. (laughs) (laughs) Unapologetically. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm I'm there. Well, I mean, it's it goes into the thing that I'm researching right now is the Codex Sinaiticus, is that they try to misplace the you know which is the oldest text, and they find a text that leaves out the resurrection. Well, the resurrection is a very difficult thing into the modern mind. You know, how does that happen? And so rather than actually wrestle with the theology and philosophy of it all or the miracle of it all, they try to create a religion that is not as difficult to prove. It's basically saving their own ass. Uh, I would say more. I don't I don't know how many Gnostics. I don't I mean, everybody's got a touch of Gnosticism, I think, these days. But I think mainly you've got an institution that they feel is worth saving. And wouldn't it be nice to get around some of the difficulties of miracles and things like that? So let's let's come up with a religion based on primacy of mind, which doesn't have as high of a hurdle to overcome. Uh, and coincidentally, the Codex Sinaiticus leaves off the resurrection of Christ. So let's make that the oldest testament and say that the whole resurrection thing was added later. Uh, and it becomes an easier product to sell to the modern mind. I would say. I think another important distinction too is like Jan just said the left, but one thing that we've talked about, I don't know if we talked about it recording or if we just talked about it privately, is that when you look at the Pharisees, the Pharisees were really elitists. Exactly. That's really what they were. And that's really when you look at the progressives now or the people that call themselves that, that's really what they are. So you can say that. And I've said that when I've interviewed you before, where it's like, calling yourself like liberal or conservative, like a lot of people would probably consider me conservative because of the world we live in now. But I feel like it's almost pointless, those terms. I look at it like the problem. Monikers mean anything anymore. Yeah, like I look at the problem that we're dealing with right now in the modern world is this elitism taking over. And that's what they were dealing with in biblical times as well. The Pharisees were dressing like Romans. They were going to all the Roman parties. They They were participating in all the wine uh i mean that that's gets into another topic but basically that's the, the feast of purim is drink until you can't stand it anymore till you can't till you can't know good from evil um yeah. it's it's the god of dionysius is the god of wine yeah and so so the whole thing was let's get drunk and that'll make friends out of us all and solve all our problems and yeah well and and what do you see today with the psychedelics and the leftism and all of this stuff hey let's get drunk let's do lots of drugs and then uh we'll all be the erosion of the ego the erosion of ego the erosion of reality uh, you know iniquity goes and then uh you know and then we can see the the collapse of society around us through the promotion of this yeah yeah so uh, uh let's see here uh, and, you know, we kind of mentioned this last week, but Oso says that the Codex Sinaiticus is wrong, found in the trash to be burned. And we had talked about that last week with uh, Fomenko. Yeah. 
And like I said, I've got a book coming from Mount Athos on that. So we'll, we'll have more about to discuss that in the future. Drink and drugs allowed for possession. And then you get the outcomes you see in front of you. Very well said. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's what I, you know, why I did an about face on the whole psychedelic movement and I renamed them suggestogens and to the word suggest means to bring to evil. But, uh, you know, that was what I discovered is that the whole thing was MKUltra, the counterculture, the the uh, psychedelic 60s, all of that was MKUltra. And it's still, you know, being heavily promoted today by every uh, fake podcast jock out there. And then, of course, you know, I went from having one of the top podcasts in the world to being sidelined because I came out exposing this. And it's been a decade and I have still not had anybody go through my work point by point and try to debunk it. They will name call, they will use ridicule, they will say no way, they will say, you know, the most common and stupid argument that I hear, well, you know, psychedelic drugs are older than the CIA, so therefore, you know, and it's like... Yeah, you know, so therefore it's the real religion and, and all of this, and therefore... Uh, Native revivalism and the archaic revival, you know, the old shamanic drug high religions, you know, like the Aztecs where they were sacrificing up to 8,000 people a day and eating them. That's good. Christianity, bad per this, you know, insane logic, you know, but people can't grasp that I've literally heard that ridiculous argument that drugs are older than the CIA upward of 10,000 or more times. And they actually think I've never thought of that. And, you know, and all of these people won't read or watch my exposures of all of that. And then, you know, come full circle with you and I kind of bringing our work together over the last couple of years. And then realizing how the Dead Sea Scrolls and Vatican II and all of this Gnosticism and Sufism. It's way beyond coincidence. Right. It merges it all together. And it's like, oh, come on, three days after the CIA is founded in in June, uh, what was it, June 26, 1947, on June 29, they have the conference in Seelisburg, Switzerland, and then that leads to the faking of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then, you know, uh, what was it, you know, Seven years later, they're doing MKUltra, promoting through Aldous Huxley and the Doors of Perception and everything, the exact same ideologies that Gnosticism and Sufism promote through the overturning of Logos and the overturning of the church and Christianity. So, you know, how... How could it be, you know, coincidence? I'm not a coincidence theorist. Are you, Steve? Well, even more than that, I mean, half this stuff was written about in Time Life magazine and Look magazine. They weren't ashamed of it. They were putting it right out there. Yeah. It, it's it, If you look back, it, you know, I, you've got the magazines. I've got the magazines. You can just read about it, and it's it's literally all there. You may have to connect a few dots here and there, but right. most right. of the stuff you look for, it, they're, they're proud of it. It's it's and and for those you know for those of you who are wondering go back and watch last week's show I did show some of those documents on screen last week I can pop some of them up here real quick while you guys are talking uh, if you'd like I would I would like to thank you though for the term suggestion because I'm reading this book The Rape of the Mind by Juice Mirlu uh, put it up there so people can see it 
it actually helps in the reading of this book. It was, it was written in 1956 about brainwashing and, and things like that, but it does actually help when he brings up things like paraphernalia and drugs and things like that. Inserting your term in there actually makes the, the text clearer. Well, you know, and the thing is, is I invented that word uh, seven years ago, and it's kind of taken hold in some circles, but, you know, most people cannot grasp that the entire foundation that they're, or the, the entire thing that they're going through on these substances is based purely on, high, even mm-hmm. that, even if you've ever heard the name psychedelic or, or let's also include entheogen, the outcome of your experience is already entirely altered. And mm-hmm. I published that article in 2014, you know, and, but what happens is, you know, every single person who attacks these ideas refuses to read the work first, you know, and we all know, well, intelligent people know that you read the work first and then the attack the ideas, not the other way around. So, right. you know, I, I think we've got them, <laughs> but whether it catches on or not, but I think we've got them. I, I think we do too. And, uh, I'm just, you know, so how old are the demons? I'm just trying to look through. You know, I know I probably missed some. Yeah, uh, DMT demons, correct. Oh, so uh, they're too proud, yawn, and love their sin too much, correct. I'm just trying to see if there's any questions we missed. There probably are. Uh, and by the way, thanks, everybody, for the support and donations and website memberships uh, from people during the week this week. I really appreciate it. I also pre- appreciate Andrew from New Zealand sending a donation a couple of weeks ago. And and uh, Oscar, I think he's in Spain. He's been a, a solid uh, uh Oh, goodness. Donator of the show for like eight years at least, you know, and I I really appreciate those people that continued to help and support the show, uh, you know, even on a 10 month and a week break. And, uh, you know, so we're back. And next week, I will not be here. I've got boxes everywhere that you can't see. But I am uh, moving out of this place and uh, excited to get out of here. But uh, uh Excuse me, Kieran. I, I would like to have a thank you to Kieran. I, it's as she feels more comfortable and integrated better. I, she's much better looking than me, me and Jan. So, <laughs> I, I have she, to, I have to soak it all in. I'll review it. <laughs> yeah, well, it'll, it'll, it'll come to me. This is her first live video show. Well, her first live show too. So, but I think you yeah. can tell from her questions. They're they're really good questions. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, Kieran's got a, a, a big brain on her shoulders there. So, uh, you know, good to have you on tonight. And uh, uh, let's see, you know, appreciate all the comments in the chat tonight. And uh, anyway, I think that's a wrap. Is there anything else anybody wants to add? I'm good if you're good. You good, Kieran? I'm good. I'm good. I wanted to thank you too. I should have said that in the beginning. I didn't thank you for having me on because I've listened to your show for so long and I just, I appreciate being a part of it. It's kind of surreal actually listening to you for so long. So I just wanted to thank you for that. Uh, You're welcome. And uh, anytime uh, you're welcome back whenever you want. I really appreciate it. And all of your 
feedback lately, and I appreciate you having me on your show. And it's really refreshing when, you know, it's it's rare when somebody goes through the work before asking me questions or doubting me rather than the than the other way around. And that's that's my biggest peeve. And uh, so I appreciate you being one of those who gets that she has to study something before she can grasp the concepts. Grammar before logic, before rhetoric. So anyway, thank you all. And uh, we will see you maybe week after next. It depends on how upturned the new place is uh, for the coming week or two. But definitely not next week. Take care, everybody, and good night.